Earth Hermes Podcast, Ex Libris Edition. Welcome to Books and Events from the World of the Western Esoteric Tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to the Thos Hermes podcast and its first Ex Libris episode. My name is Rudolf, and as always, I am your host, bringing this episode to you on July 28, 2019. For those of you who are new to Thos Hermes or who might not have heard or read those previous announcements, I want to explain briefly what the Ex Libris episodes are meant to be. Usually, the Thoth Hermes podcast brings to you lengthy interviews with interesting people from the world of the occult, the esoteric and paranormal worlds. And, of course, it will continue to do so in its regular episodes, which I am glad are now back to a bi-weekly schedule, and I hope this will stay like that for a long time. In the first seasons of the Thoth Hermes podcast, I often added a couple of book reviews and news announcements to the show. That made my production process a bit more complicated, made the show sometimes a bit too long, and didn't leave time for reviews and news items of more than four to five minutes, which mostly made it impossible to do those books and events justice. Therefore, I will now be producing once a month an extra episode called Ex Libris, which is totally dedicated to the occult world of books and events. And today you are listening to the very first issue of that kind. But before we go any further, let's present our sponsor. Anathema Publishing Limited Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a triune relationship between publisher, author and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian philosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com For the first time on Thoth Hermes, this episode will also have chapter markers. Now, what is this? That means that on selected podcast players, you can jump to the beginning of each chapter and those chapters, you can see them in your player. So, say, 
if on this episode you want to jump directly to the interview with Marja Dost, select the relevant chapter on your player, click on it, and the podcast will continue to play directly from there. Nice, isn't it? If you have any remarks, questions, ideas, please contact us in the usual way, either by email, info at saucehermes.com, or go to the website www.hermes.com, that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. There you will have a contact page to write to me, but also a free voicemail which you can use. Or go on Twitter or Facebook and contact us there. Looking forward to hearing from you with anything you want to tell me, and I'm especially open to your suggestions. Now, in brief, what you will hear on today's episode. In Chapter 1, the first book I'm going to present is a novel called The Time Collector by American author Gwendolyn Womack. This is a real page-turner, in my opinion. Chapter 2 is a particular pleasure for me. This will be a regular appearance on the Ex Libris episodes, my friend and co-podcaster Greg Kaminsky, creator of the wonderful Occult of Personality podcast, where I have the honor to be his co-host, will each month present a book of his choice, and the chapter is logically called Greg's Choice. This month, he speaks about the Cult of Golgotha by Cray Williams. Chapter 3 talks about an exciting new book on an event in the Bible, or well, almost in the Bible. The book is called The Murder of Moses and was written by Rand and Rose Flem Ath. It brings a totally new perspective on the life and especially death of one of the most mythical figures in the Bible and in general. Finally, Chapter 4 will bring a 20-minute talk with author Marja Daust at the occasion of the release of her book Familiars in Witchcraft. Hear her talk about her new book and get to know the person behind the book a bit better. This is our program for today. I hope there is something in it for you. Of course, on our website you will find all the necessary information about the books and authors that we discussed today, including links to websites, where to buy the books, etc. So go to www.thoughtshermes.com for more on that. And now a piece of music and then let's start right away with chapter one. You're now going to hear a song that is called, well, what else could it be? Magic by Matt Sierra featuring Vance. Enjoy. Save you from your past 
as a surprise to you that we start this first episode of Thoth Hermes Ex Libris with a review of a fictional book, even a kind of easy-read page-turner, so to speak. Well, and I ask you, why not? Firstly, I see Ex Libris as a field for all kinds of information on books and news from the world of the occult and magic and also the paranormal realms. And Gwendolyn Womax, the time collector, certainly is deeply linked into those worlds. Secondly, I believe it would do us occultists some good if we had a nice dose of relaxation other than through meditation from time to time. So, almost two years ago, at the very end of our season one on Thos Hermes, I already had presented Gwendolyn Womack's two other books, The Memory Painter, a story about reincarnation, 
and The Fortune Teller. This title is self-explaining. Before telling you more about her third novel, The Time Collector, let me introduce the author to you a bit. Gwendolyn Womack is originally from Houston, Texas, but now lives with her family in Los Angeles. But from Texas to California, she did not just pass through Arizona, but made quite a few interesting life experiences. She studied environmental science in college in Alaska. And after having camped all over the US and Canada for months, there in Alaska, she got in touch with professional writing for theater initially, which attracted her more than her initial thoughts. That brought her, still in college, to St. Petersburg, Russia, just a few years after Perestroika, which she says herself was an incredible life experience. She then worked in screenwriting, always keeping in mind that novels would be her aim. That opportunity arose in 2010, when her family had moved to Japan and this is where she started work on her Memory Painter, which was then published when she was already back in the US. Quite a journey she made, right? And as always, large experiences from very different parts of the world, if you can make them and also integrate them into your artistic work, they give color and diversity. And I think this can really be felt in Gwendolyn's way of writing. The Time Collector is her third published novel, which came out a couple of months ago. Do you know what a psychometrist is? Well, honestly, I didn't. So I will tell you because it is key to this novel to know that. The official definition is an expert in administering psychological tests. Those psychometrists are used by mental health, health professionals and in the business world where psychometric tests help employers evaluate job applicants. There is even such a thing as a national association of psychometrists in the US. But here in this book, we talk about another and much more hidden meaning of that word psychometry. Psychometry power is object reading, the psychic ability to touch an object and sense its history. And this is exactly the power of Roan West, the protagonist of Gwendolyn's new book. Quite an extraordinary power to have he uses this capacity in his work as a dealer with valuable antiques. Another word you need to learn. What is an oo part? Well, I think it is pronounced like that. It is written O-O-P-Art. And this is short for out of place artifact. That is an object that, historically speaking, is in the wrong place, should not be in even that dimension where it can be found in extreme cases. 
It is found in an unusual context which challenges conventional historical chronology by its presence. For example, they may seem too advanced for the technology known to exist at the time, or may suggest human presence at the time before humans are known to have existed, or may suggest even contact between different cultures that don't follow historical understanding. Well, Roan and his friend and fellow psychometrist Stuart in the book find a number of such ooh parts, including a ring belonging to the 17th century mathematician and philosopher René Descartes that was found buried in prehistoric bedrock. And then Stuart disappears, making him one of several psychometrists who have died mysteriously in recent months or vanished without a trace. And this leads us into a wonderfully unwinding thriller which carries the reader across the planet and through many forgotten corners of history. It also needs to be mentioned that there is, as in any good thriller, just see Dan Brown, a nice romantic story mixed into this because Roan wants to save a young woman by the incredible name of Melisent Tilpin from further harm by O Parts and the Bad Ones. The last original Brigade timepiece to surface came from the private collection of a noble family in England, the French representative said, bewildered as to how one of the most treasured watches in the world had been lost at the flea market in Anaheim. He acted as if he had been the one to put it there. When the representative offered her 1.8 million, every muscle in Melisand's body ceased. She sat there frozen, suspended for an endless moment, feeling disconnected and far away. Then she heard herself say yes. The company kept the watch and wired the funds to her bank account right then. When Melisand walked out of the store, she looked around, turning in a full circle, suddenly feeling like an astronaut who had landed on another planet, a world where she was no longer struggling or stressed. She was free to live a different life. She had almost $2 million in her bank account, an account that had had $429 before today. This short passage from the book might hint you a bit why she has to be protected from the bad ones. I'm not going to tell you more about the story, of course. That would spoil the reading pleasure. And pleasure it is. I love to read stories from time to time that not only are entertaining and well-written, that carry you from page to page without the headache, but this is a story with a lot of paranormal and occult background. And the interesting aspects of geography and also especially history, she meets Mozart at some time, that are woven into this, that make this a very good reading experience. Just like that you learn new things. Well, I did. Which make you want to look certain facts up and where you find out, 
that a lot of things in life which at first look incredible and sound like pure fiction are in fact rooted in reality and facts. Not all of it, of course. This is a fictional work, but it is very inspiring. So, definitely worth the read, especially on hot summer evenings or on hot summer days on the beach. You are certainly going to enjoy The Time Collector highly. Chapter 2 Greg's Choice Greg Kaminsky of Occult of Personality Podcast and ChamberofReflection.com with my re- review of Craig Williams' book, Cult of Golgotha, published by Anathema Publishing in 2018. First of all, it should be clear that I can't give a objective uh, review of this book because, um, well, I'm friends, good friends with the author, Craig Williams. He's been on my podcast for more appearances, I think, than any other guest at this point. And that's no accident. Uh, I find his work compelling, inspiring, original, creative. And uh, we have a deep connection since the Eastern thought in the Western occult world panel discussion at the 2012 Esoteric Book Conference in Seattle. So ever since then, um, I've been an admirer of his work and considered him a friend. So, my opinion here is uh, clearly going to be a very positive one. Now, I have to say that the book itself, uh, the physical copy, is pretty exquisite. Anathema Publishing consistently delivers the in my opinion, highest quality uh, small publisher esoteric books that are available today. Um, From the design work to the materials to the printing and the fonts and the illustrations... Uh, it's really, really well done, like collector quality 
Absolutely. Without a doubt. They do justice to the material they publish. So you can't go wrong with Anathema Publishing in terms of the quality of the book itself, I think. At least that's been my experience. It's been very consistent. And this is no exception. So with that said, uh, Craig has really delivered a book that went way beyond my own expectations about what he was doing and um, the type of material that he was going to bring forth. This book, Cult of Golgotha, um, really stretches the reader. Um, it's highly original and very creative. And at times, it invokes the flavor of Michael Berdio or of Kenneth Grant. But it's, it's much more than that. It's just, I think, the, uh, the, like, as I said, it's the flavor of those authors and their um, sort of uh, dark, descriptive language. I think is really what it comes down to and the and the sort of moods that it conveys and and really what it's describing in terms of um, occult work and how that manifests. So I think it's really fascinating. What what Craig has written here really spans a number of disciplines and areas of study that he specializes in. So it's, it's quite interesting to me. You have Gnostic Christianity. You have esoteric Voodoo. You have his um, specific type of uh, Hinduism, which I, you know, hesitate to use that word, I think, after conversations with him, but I don't really know what else to call it exactly. I think maybe Tantra is a better description for it. And the way that he melds these together in a really interesting and seamless way I, th I find to be truly fascinating, along with, you know, his his expertise in Ayurveda and and really substantial references to all sorts of occult manifestations, uh, including UFOs and uh, quantum physics and all sorts of uh, what he calls tantric physics, which relate to the, the subtle body and practices and effects of those practices. So it's really extraordinary the way that he's developed this and, um, and put it all together in a book that, again, I think challenges and stretches the reader because... Um, He's, he's really introducing 
a sort of new way, I think, for many people of um, describing and understanding esoteric practice and the results of that and sort of the, the landscapes of um, Gnostic exploration that can result. And, and one of those is, is highly creative and highly mystical. And I think that's probably one of the big things I want to talk about in terms of Craig's book is the way that he expresses the complete and absolute mystery of some of the things that he, we are dealing with in terms of the subtle body, um, generally like reality itself, uh, the beingness, uh, awareness and consciousness and how these function, like on some level, it's ultimately like so mysterious that um, I think we often don't appreciate the radical, mystical and sometimes bizarre nature of of all of this. And I think Craig's book expresses that in a way that's really unique and deserves attention, especially in, in the occult community, um, because this is the sort of work that I would expect from more people, frankly. Not, not this well done, obviously, but in, in this vein um, where it's highly creative so it wouldn't be a similar book, but just uh, displaying the sort of creativity and, and mystical exploration that this does is, is pretty um, outstanding. And I wish we had more of it. Um, so one of the things he talks about in the book is the human systems of control. I think that's really necessary in terms of people's uh, real contemplation of that in terms of escaping, um, you know, mostly middle class values, but in some senses it goes even deeper. And I think that's really something that has to be considered if, if one is to truly engage in a practice that is going to destroy, um, conceptuality at some level because we, you know on the level of Tantra um, I'm talking about a, a radical shift in view and and I really think it's fascinating what Craig has put together here I highly recommend it and I wish we could see more of this sort of material from people Cult of Golgotha is definitely one of my uh, favorite books that I've seen this year. And uh, as I said in, in the interview with Craig, um, I enjoyed it immensely and uh, I recommend it.
Chapter 3 What I find always so interesting about being a hermeticist is that you walk through the world with a completely different openness of senses and thoughts. That way you start discovering things in life you never knew they existed, or if you had known, that you have not taken them seriously enough so far. Which does not mean you become suddenly naive and accept everything people say, think and publish, all to the contrary. But new ideas that you hear from others often lead you to do your own research and often to the discovery of things that were already there in front of your eyes and ears, but somehow hidden, and which you had never stumbled across before. This is a bit what happened to me when I first went through the new book by Rand and Rose Flem Ath, the book that is called The Murder of Moses. The book was published two months ago by Beer and Company, and it is actually a revised edition of Killing Moses, published by another company in 2014. Its subtitle is How an Egyptian Magician Assassinated Moses, Stole His Identity and Hijacked the Exodus. Well, already by that subtitle you can see that this is a quite bold statement which is made in that book. And in fact, if you follow the theory of the authors, the murderer was called Reuel. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Reuel, and he was in fact a magician and the father-in-law of Moses. First, let me tell you a bit more about the authors. Rand and Rose Flemath are a couple of Canadian researchers and writers. Rand has appeared on Discovery Channel, History Channel, BBC and others. Rose is both a novelist and non-fiction writer. One thing they are very well known for is that they have worked on the Atlantis quest as well, publishing a book called Atlantis Beneath the Ice. They live in an archipelago off the coast of British Columbia. I think that's quite a nice place to be, isn't it? What I meant earlier when I said that I discovered new things was that it was none other than the great Sigmund Freud, who over a long time in his life was himself puzzled by the life and death of the biblical Moses. And he has spent the last 40 years of his life, just as long as it took Moses to lead the Hebrews across the Sinai Desert, well, Freud spent those last 40 years of his life obsessed with solving that riddle of Moses' death. And what was even more surprising to me, I discovered that the great German author and philosopher Johann Wolfgang von Goethe had already suggested in one of his early writings that Moses must have been murdered by two of his co-Israelites. 
Freud, of course, had been using this murder as an explanation for the way the Jewish religion was established. And his book, The Man, Moses and the Monotheistic Religion, was his very last one, published in his London exile in 1939, when Freud was aged 82. So, when you find out about all this, and Freud is very central to the book by the Flem Aths, then you immediately are a bit less surprised by such a statement made by the authors that Moses had in fact been murdered. Where this book goes much further than Goethe or Freud is of course that they do an in-depth investigation into the case by using biblical texts, historical facts, etc. etc. And they also, in the end, name the murderer. As I said before, it was the magician Reuel. He was not only Moses' father-in-law. He had family ties that sound even more interesting. Reuel was not only the father of Zipporah, we know her, she is Moses' wife, and he, we know him Reuel better under his other name there, Jethro. But that Reuel was also the son of Esau. Esau, remember him? He is the son of Abraham and the brother of Jacob. And it was that Jacob that stole Esau, Reuel's father, his birthright, the leadership of the Hebrew people. And this leadership is exactly the role that Moses had now taken over. Well, Reuel was certainly jealous. He was a prince of Edom, we believe that in the Bible, and it is said by our authors here that the mountain of God, the place where Moses was supposed to have received the Ten Commandments, it was supposedly located in that princedom of Edom. Edom, so in Reuel's governing area, and not in Sinai. And it was that very Reuel who used his magical skills of manipulation and illusion to fake the burning bush that spoke to Moses, and some other rather more criminal things in the end for the murder of Moses. You could now rightly say, wait, Esau's son cannot possibly be Zipporah's father. There seem to be almost 1,000 years between those two people. And you're right. But you should read that book, The Murder of Moses, to get those explanations. And I don't want to spoil your pleasure here. Now, of course, there is one thing I must say. In order to ask you all those questions about what happened to the real Moses, etc., in order to wonder why his grave, for example, was never found and all those similar mysteries, you would have to accept that the biblical text is really meant literally. In order to be surprised by the fact that the Hebrews took so many years to travel through the Sinai desert, a distance that they would have probably 
covered in a much shorter time. You put aside the possibility, for example, that those 40 years which the Bible mentions are a rather symbolic value which we can find in many places. You remember, if you know the Bible, for example, those 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert before he met the devil. And even the word quarantine, which we use in a different way nowadays, is a direct memory of that symbolism, meaning 40. But never mind. The authors take visibly those accounts as a historical one, and if you accept that, then the murder of Moses indeed becomes a highly intense cold case story. And I'm not saying the authors take the Bible by its literal meaning, really. I don't have that impression. They give many highly symbolic interpretations of its content and use them as evidence for their own theories. Let me just, for example, give you the title of Widow's Son for Moses. And all Masons listening here will know what I mean by this. And this is just one example. To be honest, I was a bit skeptical when I started reading that book. Too far-fetched and a bit sounding like a headline seemed the title and the theory behind it. But in fact, after having read the book, I found many interesting bits and explanations discovered how that story and its background were not at all a new one of our days, but only now treated in a new and much more in-depth way than ever before. And this is highly interesting. In the end, it's for me like with the big majority of esoteric and occult books. If they are well researched and if you see that the author knows what they're talking about and are well educated, and both is really the case here, then you find a big number of very interesting jigsaw pieces for your own and personal occult puzzle. You might not like or accept every single idea that you read about. You might come to different conclusions here or there. But the book, The Murder of Moses, is definitely very inspiring and a good read. Chapter 4. Welcome, Marja Daoust, on the very first episode of the Thoth Hermes Ex Libris podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Good evening to you in California. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Marja, today we're going to talk mainly about your new book, Familiars in Witchcraft, uh, which has been issued lately. And the subtitle is Sub Supernatural Guardians in the Magical Traditions of the World. Such a very exciting topic, and I'm glad we can talk about it a little bit today. Before we start talking about the book, would you be kind enough to present yourself a little bit to our audience to tell them who you are, what brought you to the place where we are today 
in the witchy and and uh, magical traditions. Who is Marja Daust? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Yes. I am a bit of an enigma. <laughs> as all <of> them are. <laughs> That's um, good. <laughs> I, am, I am a practicing witch. I have been for a couple of decades and I uh, mostly treat people through divination, counseling. I do herbal and Chinese medicine. I use psychological techniques through, um, I got a master's degree in transformational psychology. And then I also write books, as you can see, and do a lot of research mm -hmm. and practice into occult ancient techniques. So for me, my background, I mostly started with alchemy. Uh, I studied science in school and mostly biochemistry. So uh, I had practiced paganism from the time I was a teenager And then really got veered into the alchemy side of things as I went into chemistry studies and then more into the herbs and plants when I studied Chinese medicine. And then I did a lot of energy training through martial arts and Qigong and stuff like that. So most of my focus is really on nature and nature studies from my perspective. Right. And interestingly, because I think that's still a rather rare thing in, in the world of the Western esoteric tradition, at least, you are both a, a scientist and a practitioner, right? Yes, exactly. I, from my view, when I was studying science, I couldn't help but notice how they it very much upheld a lot of the ancient teachings. So that's really, they, they merged together. And with, of course, all of the nature uh, practices, they fed each other. And my grandfather was a geologist, so I was very influenced by him growing up as well. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you encounter any resistance from the academic world uh, when they found out that you were also being, so to speak, on the other side? Oh, yes. It's so funny. You know, even academics who study occultism and paganism were very shy and didn't want to admit or go in a direction that they might practice it. So I would talk to scientific academics and they were not interested at all in experimenting with any magical practice. And then the scholars and academics who write about magic and occultism became very shy when I mentioned that they maybe could practice some of it. They don't like that at all is what I found. <laughs> Interesting. It's like musicologists who often don't even play an instrument. This must be the same phenomenon. Yeah, really very indeed. much. It's very strange, yeah. right? It is. Certainly is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Maja, um, your book, as I said earlier, is called Familiars in Witchcraft. And the first question that arises from that, from our audience, I guess, is what for you is a familiar? What What is that? What... How would you define a familiar? Yes, this is an important question. And as I went into my research, I found it was much larger than I think a lot of people think it is. Usually you think of a black cat, right? I think most, mm -hmm. most people, if you're going to think of a familiar, you're going to think of a witch and either a black cat or possibly some other animal, certainly. So as I started the research, what I would say a familiar spirit is, is much larger than that, although it certainly can include black cats and animals. If you look into the word familiar, it really comes from family. 
So family is the key word there and included in familiar spirits are also ancestors. A lot of cultures view familiar spirits as totems, which are tied to their family, their bloodline, their ancestry. And then they can also be viewed as intelligences like the genius. So it can be like an informing or guiding guardian angel, almost a kind of higher intellect that is your familiar spirit that guides you and tries to show you things are also considered familiars. And then, of course, there are the animal spirits and guides that are nature-based. And those can also include trees and rocks and even mountains. Um, so I, I really wanted to put in the book that it's much broader than I think a lot of people try to place it as. Right. I found when I read the book especially interesting that you, well, many things, but what you just mentioned that it could be also what we would call, well, we, maybe not us pagans, but uh, the other people would call a rock a non-living object, right? And even even such a non-living object would be, uh, could be a familiar in that case, no? Yes, of course, I feel like rocks are living also because well, sure. uh, they, <laughs> they grow and they reproduce, right? So they fit the technical yeah. definition of life is it has to grow and reproduce, uh, which crystals do, yes. So, but yeah, other people would see rocks as familiar spirits and, and mountains and even land. Uh, so certain areas of land have been considered familiar spirits. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. We'll get a bit deeper into that in a minute. Um, but first, let, let me ask you, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, I'm sure when one goes into such an, uh, a task, uh, there, there you feel a certain need for such a book. So what was the inspiration for it? What made you feel that need? Yes, I was completely driven uh, to write and share it through passion. And it was based on personal experience. So for me, the inspiration to write the book was because of my own personal uh, interactions with familiar spirits and uh, what I kind of figured out about them. I felt like I had to share it with other people to kind of bring their awareness to this phenomenon so that they could experience it. And also how humans have been interacting with familiars pretty much all through history around the globe. So it's a, a big deal. Yeah. Also, I, I find it very interesting because you're talking about all around the globe that already in the presentation of yourself, you said that, but also in the book, it comes out very clearly. We are not only talking about the Western tradition in that book. There's also chapters talking about the Queen Mothers and Dragon Kings in Chinese legends or about guiding guardians of India. So the Eastern tradition is very much present, right? Very much so. And I really wanted to point that out because most people think of familiars as Western or European. So a lot of folks, when they speak of them, <laughs> will put them in Europe, whereas China had familiar totems and ancestor spirits, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So it's important mm -hmm. to, to include that. Absolutely. Uh, what about North America? You mentioned Europe now, but uh, what about North America? Is there a particular approach to the familiars there? Yes, in the indigenous Native Americans, they're the totems. So the word totem, of course, means family spirit. Uh, and they're talking about familiar spirits. And even when you see a totem pole, there'll be animals and different spirit creatures. And those actually are the families 
familiar spirits. So they have the exact same version uh, that the European witches do. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, who you think is the target audience for your book? I mean, everybody, of course, yes. <laughs> But who, who do you think should really be most interested in that in that book? And what what can you offer those people? I really wanted to write it personally for people who had experiences of these familiar spirits giving them information or assistance or guidance so that they would know that they aren't the only ones, that there is a large tradition of it throughout humanity so that they could relate to it. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think is it also well of course it's not the grimoire certainly not but is it also a kind of uh, um, how to do things book so is it something that that you would suggest for somebody who would like to get in touch with their own familiar with with their own spirit around them is it also for them or is it just an approach to get to know about familiars in general Yes, I did include some of that in the book. I mentioned uh, some of the techniques that several different places use, which tend to be the same. Uh, most of it includes deprivation techniques like fasting or going without sleep. And, you know, it's difficult. So sometimes people just come into these relationships without trying or doing anything. The familiar will find you, right? But... For most people, they, they have to do these techniques to kind of draw it out or draw it forward. Do you think it happens regularly that a familiar finds you, but you have not really found out yet that he has found you, he or she has found you? I do think there's confusion around that because if people don't know what it is, they kind of will just think they're crazy, right? <laughs> I, think, right, right. I think that quite a few people have had familiars or guidance from their genius guardian or daemon, you know, and then they think it's something evil or not normal. So they'll like ignore it or uh, try to get away from it almost. Exactly. I, I very much get the impression and it also comes out for me clearly in your book and especially in the last chapter and I find that and you call that the voices in our heads and I find it a, a very fascinating conclusion of the of the whole work you do there one of the first chapters is called shamanic totems well uh, you talked about totems but the word shamanic um, somehow I have maybe the wrong but the impression that um, shamanism is a bit on the on the basis of The whole subject somehow I get the impression that when you talk about rocks or landscapes or when you talk about going into deprivation techniques uh, in order to meet your familiar that all reminds me very much of basic shamanic techniques am I wrong on that you're a hundred percent correct and one of the things I mentioned in the book is how many shamans Their familiar spirits will be plant spirits uh, and they come into a relationship with this plant spirit through, like you said, these techniques are also shamanic. So they'll like my friend who's a Nigerian shaman, his grandfather was the village shaman and the way he would administer medicine is he would fast from food and water for five days and then go into the African bush and he would ask his plant spirit familiar 
plant do I give this sick person? And then the plant spirit would tell him which plant to give him. Mm-hmm. Well, we have such accounts also from North American or Siberian shamans. And even Castaneda talks about it partly, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I have a question about the, the more um, magical tradition, so to speak. You're mentioning in the, I think it's in the chapter of Judeo-Christian traditions, you're talking about the guardian angel, uh, which is also mentioned. I don't mean the, the Crowley guardian angel. I mean the guardian angel in the Christian tradition, in the Catholic tradition. Um, do I get you right that you see that also like an image of a familiar Yes, the guardian angels in the Christian and Jewish tradition give data, information, guidance, and instruction to the human. This is the exact same way that the familiar does to the shaman, to the witch. They're messengers of guidance and information. So if you see, they're performing the same task. Interesting. And well, I mentioned it, but maybe just for the fun of the question, um, the famous holy guardian angel, the higher self, that not only Crowley and the Thelemites, but a lot of uh, ceremonial magicians also work to achieve, right? Um, would you also put it into, into that field or is that for you something completely different? I do include it. And there are some people who feel like uh, there's a familiar that is only kind of a part of yourself or your higher self that it's it's tricky because some people think it's like a partner. So they think you come in with a partner spirit and then other people think it's an aspect of self. Right. So it gets different definitions right very that's a very interesting uh, approach uh, i find in that book because i had never seen it like that it's very interesting one tricky question maybe um at some point you speak about the fact that uh, there is also some often in some relationships between a person and its familiar there would be some sexual attraction especially from the spirit to the female person right um not now why do you say that only that way why not also the other way why not a female spirit to a to a male person so to speak why only one way or and is that the kind of male fantasy that created that part of it oh yeah it absolutely goes from the male end as well i mentioned that in the shaman uh, part with plants so a lot of the male shamans their plant familiar is very jealous of them too. So they actually can't have a wife because the plant wants to only have a relationship with them. And uh, you're right. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it's interesting, but definitely it's both male and female. I did give a lot of examples of females in the book, however. So you're right. But if you look at, um, even the stories of the fallen angels, such as the Nephilim, of course, there's, historical stories of spirits interacting sexually with humans this goes back a long way that's the whole story of christianity is a spirit that, right impregnates a woman so it's all the same story 
there is it's always the same story be it the famous story of jesus but be it also the very dark story of witches being burned on the stake because they were said to have relations with well the devil but which you could also call a familiar right right Yes, it's the same thing from my perspective. Of course, they argue that Holy Spirit relations are good. And then if you have a relation with Pan, it's evil. But this is all silliness. Right? Exactly. Well, who are we to define what's good or bad in that case? That's exactly. Right. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Marja, uh, what I also would really like to mention, because it's an important part of that book is the artwork and I'm very impressed because the artwork is not by a, a talented illustrator yes but the talented illustrator is yourself so you are also you are also a visual artist so can you say a bit about that as well about that part of the book Oh, yes. Thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yes, I do. Uh, I've done art since I was a little child and a lot of the artwork in the book, as well as I did a tarot deck, too. It's I use a meditative practice. So I try to receive the imagery in meditation to get the visual And then I just draw it. As you saw, it's all line work. So I usually draw very quickly in the moment that I see the image using a kind of trance state. So it's inspirational art, so to speak. Yes, very much. Yeah. 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 I, I really I really like it. Very interesting. Maja, briefly, maybe you could tell us a little bit uh, to, to round that uh, whole issue up. Uh, tell us a little bit about the previous books you wrote, or at, at least the most important of those. And if there is maybe your next project book-wise, if you want to share that with our audience. Oh, sure. Yeah, a lot of your audience, if they're into uh, hermetics as yourself, uh, might like my first book is called The Secret Source. Uh, where I go back through the attraction principle and prosperity, con you know, kind of consciousness. And I show how they actually took that from hermetic wisdom and then they alter it, you know, to make it about material manipulation. So that, it's a kind of a, a short book that tells the history of hermeticism. Uh, and then my other works are I did a tarot deck which was visionary, as I mentioned. And then I have a bestiary, which goes into some of the occult esoteric mythology of the beasts, which you won't get from other sources <laughs> because a lot of people, you know, they think of a unicorn in a certain way. So I told it from the alchemical perspective because I feel like I left out of all of the, the bestiaries and it's a little disappointing. So I wanted to make... Uh, a, a volume that included the, the esoteric knowledge of the beast. Uh, that's very important. That's I haven't okay. yeah, seen anyone yeah. do that, so I was uh, kind of shocked. Yeah. So. And I, I gather the tarot deck is also art by you, by yourself, right? Yeah, that's correct. That was very uh, driven and almost like I received it and it made me push it out. So that was very much, I blame my familiar spirit for the tarot. Okay. <laughs> well, good for him <laughs> or her. I don't know. <laughs> It's funny. Mine is a him. I feel like I, when I saw it from, from my per, kind of perspective, it was very much like the animal animus or it was an oppositional kind of gender thing that happened but okay um, well yeah. good yeah well, well sounds sounds logic to me in a way yeah absolutely uh -huh. right yeah it's, it's funny and then i have a uh, my 
project is um, a book on the I Ching, which is a, a Chinese divination system. Right, exactly. And again, there we are. Again, there you are crossing the border, so to speak. You are also talking about the Eastern tradition. Yes, very much. I don't know why, but I am so attracted to Chinese tradition and kind of have a an understanding of it. I love Chinese and Taoism is really kind of, if you're a pagan, I encourage every pagan to read about Taoism because it's very profound. Me personally, if I may say that, I'm very much into the, the Boon tradition and I'm not talking about the Buddhist version yes. of it, but the ancient Boon oh, traditions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The pagan shaman of Tibet. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, Maja, Thank you so much for that talk. It was exciting to talk about that book and about a few other things. And I'm sure our audience will enjoy Familiars in Witchcraft. Of course, all the details to the book and where to get it are being posted on the show notes to this, uh, to this very special Ex Libris show, the first of its kind. So thank you to be part of it. Thank you for your time and all the best to you and your work and everything that's coming in your life. Oh, thanks so much for you as well. I'm so glad to be part of the inauguration. Thank you. So, this is the end of the first Ex Libris episode of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Somehow, when compiling and editing the show, I had the impression that all four subjects we treated are a perfect example of how wide and diverse also our occult world is, just as real life. Well, yes, I know, occultism is real life, and that's what makes it so exciting. Discovering new things, new people, and learning about others and their point of view is the aim of an occultist's life, isn't it? I do apologize for a few technical sound problems that we encountered when speaking to Maja. I think we got them corrected in a way that is perfectly good quality, but sometimes you feel a bit the geographical distance between California and Austria. I'm also still trying out a few things and will develop this format further, but I hope you already enjoyed this first piece. Thanks to all of those who participated and especially to you all who were listening today. In the future, there will also be more and more guest reviewers and commentators on this show, so this should become a very lively and varied show format, I hope. Our next Ex Libris episode is due in about four weeks, but until then the regular episodes will of course go ahead in their regular and normal rhythm. So, next week, on August 4, our guest on episode 5 of season 3 will be Thomas Hatzis, and we shall talk about psychedelics, a very interesting topic. Two weeks later, on August 18, 
My guest will be Shani Oates, somebody I wanted to have with me for an interview for a long time. So, an exciting month of August ahead and coming up on Thor's Hermes, I think. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And if there are episodes from the past that you have not yet listened to, you can find them all on the website, but also on Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast outlets. For now, I tell you, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.